0: Hello and welcome to another episode in the series Ruh by Team Chipinaway, where we talk about history of medicine.
1: So today we have with us Ms. Radhika Hegde, who's a curator at the SL Bhatia History of Medicine Museum, Library and Archives. She's also a part of the Health and Humanities Division at the St. John's Research Institute, Bangalore. Hi Radhika.
0: Hi Radhika.
2: Hi. Hi Akash. Hi Durga. Hi once again.
1: Because of popular demand, we had to get you back on for this series. So thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you for doing so much. I think the first time I heard you, I was like so blown over. Initially, I was like, okay, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? But as in when now I'm like hearing things, it's fascinating kind of things that you guys have put together, the thought that has gone into it. And I think it's also one of the first podcasts that looks at the archival projects and how archives have been actively used in research. So I think that's very good because it's not just the objects that you guys are looking at and telling the fascinating story of but also how the researchers are connected to the objects and the entire research. I think it has come out very beautiful.
1: Thank you so much, Radhika. And I think you set the foundations perfectly for today's episode because what we're trying to talk about is gleaned from the archives, both at the museum and from the Karnataka State Archives, as well as other institutions like the Mythic Society, wherein we're trying to look at, in the broader context of the colonial time period, how princely states such as the erstwhile kingdom of Mysore, undertook medical institutionalizations and their perspective and views on how a medicine should be done. Prior to the historical records we have in the archives from the 1800s onwards, we know that medicine was generally within the sphere of the community. You had various kinds of women undertaking different practices, especially when it comes to women's health care, as well as just general caregiving for their own families. We know that, you know, barbers were in charge of amputations and clearing infections and from looking at Mughal sources which we did with Anand, there was some kind of institutionalization of medicine and medicine practice and learning. So we know that for the broader context but when we come to the kingdom of Mysore the modern southern part of Karnataka today which includes cities like Bangalore, Mysore and other regions we know because of the archives that they leave behind that there is an active effort by the kingdoms and other agents involved be it the colonial government or missionary activities or even individual philanthropists who wanted to ensure that access to healthcare as well as opportunities for all of these kinds of medical practices was available for a larger and broader audience. And I think your PhD is also looking at certain elements of this, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yes. So basically, when we started this entire foray into women's health and uh, Mysore princely state, the understanding was very simple. In our museum itself, we have a women doctor's corner. And uh, what I felt looking at the space itself was that where are the women doctors of Bangalore or Mysore region? And we have so many hospitals around Bangalore Bangalore, which actually dates to the princely Mysore state, especially hospitals related to women's health care. So I think my interest actually started in order to find something more and then put those stories in the museum itself so that people know the kind of history that there is. This is how the interest developed and it's amazing what the archives actually has to offer regarding women's health care in Bangalore especially. We know so many stories related to women doctors in presidency, Bombay, Bengal, a lot of work has been done. But when it comes to princely Mysore state, not much. There are a lot of unpublished PhD work that actually speaks about healthcare in Bangalore, but not specifically women's health. And in princely Mysore state, this is interesting because the king himself, as well as the queen regent, they actually invited a lot of people to come and actively participate in women's healthcare because of the high maternal as well as infant mortality. So you have, as you rightly pointed out, Akash, uh, Uh, We have the philanthropists who are like the traders in Bangalore who contributed much towards the construction of the hospitals or the infrastructure. We also had the king actively supporting them And we also had the missionaries on the other end who actually came in and set up hospitals, not just in Bangalore, but you know in the periphery regions also. Going into the archives, reading out some of the names of the women doctors who have contributed so much about their lives. I think it's very interesting and it has given us a lot of things to further develop this project. It's something that Akash and I are doing right now. And hopefully within a year, we'll be able to bring out a paper also. And it might be one of the first papers that exclusively looks at institutionalization of maternity in Bangalore City.
1: Even though the missionaries established these centers within uh, Mysore State, a lot of the funding again still came from the King. So, we have in the archives, they talk about this maternity hospital that was established in Chandraipatna, which is near Bangalore. And the Directors and the committee there are writing to the king saying that we don't have money. Can you fund us? And in response, the king writes to his prime minister talking about, hey, what is the scene? What can give give to them? And in that, the prime minister gives his entire list of missionary hospitals that they're already actively supporting. So you know that even though in name, it is maybe three different groups of people. The kingdom, the philanthropists and the missionaries working towards this. But it's a larger interconnected network. We can't see them in isolation. So, for example, philanthropists gave a lot of money to establish the first maternity hospital in Bangalore, which was, I think, started somewhere around the 1880s. And we have archives about all of these philanthropists coming, raising this money to build this hospital.
2: Right. And also a lot of nursing homes that were actually set up to look at maternity care. Not just that, even to do with education for these women who were actually sent abroad. It was sent with the help of the king's money. Very few kingdoms across India actually supported this kind of a setup as such. For the princely Mysore state, modernizing this health care as well as reaching out to women, not just in urban areas but also rural areas, became very, very important. So they could not establish big hospitals everywhere. But they started training the local sulgittis or the dais in modern methods of healthcare. as such. They tried to reach out as much as possible. But like all the other colonial setups across the world and not just in India, the local municipalities hardly had any money. So in the Akash, we also see there is a lot of conversation as Akash rightly pointed out between the princely state, between the colonial state and the local municipality on who is going to maintain. You set up the infrastructure, well and good. You know, we have contributed money and we have set it up. But later on, who is going to maintain this? Because the affordability of the people to pay for this healthcare is very minimal. But how are we going to maintain it and run it is one of the biggest question that comes across. And then there are few places that were also shut down because you know, they could not pay the fees for the doctors or whatever it is. But many of them survive with the help of the king. And I think it's very interesting that some of these hospitals are till to this day existing which is I think the rich legacy of the princely Mysore state not just in healthcare but I think their contribution equally to the education system should also be noticed because it's not just setting up big infrastructure but they also made sure the native women as well as the native men were sent or financed in some way or the other to go abroad be it the US or Europe as such to get training in modern public healthcare system as well as gynecology and then you know come back and serve the state as such i think that's very good because otherwise in most of the spaces what we find is the colonial doctors the english doctors that are there but here we also find an active group of native doctors who were as trained like their counterparts and here they made sure you know the women who could not afford to go to institutions like this were able to you know get medicines from the native practitioners also so i think in some way or the other they tried to reach out to the wider public as much as possible
1: And the structures of the institutions are also laid out. You talk about like a head surgeon, you have assistant surgeons to help them, then you have nurses to help them, then you have apothecaries who are dealing with medicines. So this entire structure is laid out in detail in the archives. And like Radhika mentioned, in spaces where they couldn't have the whole structure, they're actually setting up apothecaries, training midwives. And in some cases, we know that, you know, these midwives are shared between multiple districts. You see a lot of these kinds of compromises and interactions between the different institutions. Кючинский.
2: Yes, it was not a very ideal system, but then for the conditions that were existing then this was the best that they could actually offer and do with the support of the state. But also some of the women doctors, one of the most interesting ladies that we came across was Miss Rose Govindarajulu. It was just one name that we saw it in passing, but as we started digging the archives as well as referring to other sources, we realized the great role that this woman doctor played, not just practicing in the system as such, but practicing in a very Patriarchal system. I think that was very interesting because Rose did not get married and then she actually did her basic education in Madras. She started serving the Mysore medical system when it was set up initially in the 1880s itself. Later on, she went to UK, got her education and came back to Mysore and then, you know, served the system until her death. So I think that is very interesting because in most of her correspondence, we are not just seeing that she's actually running a hospital, but she's also arguing to make her position better in this entire system that was run by men. And uh, how she does it and what she does, it's a very interesting
0: read. Thank you for that snapshot. I was actually quite curious about the form or shape of the archives itself, wherein do you have more of report writing from top down, or do you have a plethora of personal correspondences or a view from the ground up? And other question was again, the agency and the voice of women doctors that gets represented in the archives, or is it more of reading between the lines for us as researchers? So the
2: archives basically is a very colonial archive where you know we have a lot of administrative ports. Until the 1900s, we have a lot of doctors from England actually corresponding with each other. But with the kind of medical establishment that was reformed by the princely Mysore state in the 1900s, what we find is the correspondence between the native doctors and the princely Mysore state start increasing. So there is a little change in the way things actually are in the archives. Mostly it is definitely these huge administrative reports, especially on diseases. But like in all archives, there are some pleasant services. surprises. Prices that just keep cropping up here and there. And then you'll find correspondence between some of these women doctors who are expressing their displeasure with the system as the whole. But when you read these letters or correspondence, you will not see that they're complaining about it. But the language that is used, I think it's very good. Even Akash has been doing this with me and I think he'll be a good person to respond more to it because uh, he has gone through it completely. And then we would sit across the table and say, look, 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 here is Rose." Govindrajalo. She is saying something. But of course, it's very patriarchal and colonial to a very large extent
1: i think one of the series of documents that especially highlights this is the discussion amongst male doctors for the reason you need a lady medical service instituted because they feel that women are getting higher salaries women are getting more opportunities to get promoted and they don't want to work under women doctors so you have this entire series of correspondences that happened say in the 1910s wherein the male doctors amongst themselves are saying we need of lady medical doctor service where you can put all the lady medical doctors they can have their own hierarchies they can have their own structures and also one of the things they come in the discussion is that we should cut their salary to the same level as uh, male doctors but give them something called sex allowance which is because they're women, you give them a little bit more money. But their base rate is the same as the other male doctors. So that the male doctors don't feel threatened by the presence of women doctors. Yeah,
2: And many of them feel threatened. Though. They are like, uh, why is she getting more than me? Why is her house bigger than me? That kind of complaints from the male doctors are much more when <laughs> compared to the women doctors. That's about, you know, the larger system of how the women doctors had to actually fight for their position in the in entire system there. But there were also midwives uh, who are actually asking for better salaries because for almost 10 to 12 districts there would be one trained midwife. And this in itself says that you know they were not able to cover all the districts and many of them had to you know figure out their system on their own. And mostly many women depended on the local dais itself. But of course there is a lot of demonization of the dais in these spaces saying that they are not hygienic. So we see a lot of complaints, but what do you do about the complaints? We do not have funds to train them, so we are not going ahead. So I think when we are reading the archives also, we need to be a little bit careful on how we are positioning our arguments because there is a lot of this is that, that is this. We are giving like 20 rupees in order to cover their charges. But how much will you be able to cover in those 20 rupees? So when we are reading the archives, especially colonial archives like this, we need to kind of triangulate it with the other sources that are available also, especially look at the vernacular language and then see are these sources actually right or uh, can we say that you know these many things were done by the state as such, but of course you need to take it with a pinch of salt (laughs) and then kind of widen your reading with the other sources in order to place the system in the larger setup.
1: And I think that leads to how we see modern medical infrastructure nowadays. You know, there's a concentration in urban spaces, while there is a dearth in uh, rural spaces. That's always this tug of war, right? Saying that, you know, people in rural areas don't have access to medical resources. We can see roots of that going back to these archives. What is happening is that actively there's a demonization of these local practices and uh, health-seeking behavior, Unfortunately, it is not replaced by the actual medical infrastructure that is needed. So you're eroding away the local traditional medical practices, promoting an active modern kind of medical approach. However, you're not funding the development of these medical approaches in these rural spaces. So what is happening is that the people there are moving away from traditional practices. So they need active healthcare. However, they're not being supported. So that's leading to these lack of medical facilities there, which post-independence is further highlighted and results in the imbalance that we currently have.
2: Yes, in the princely Mysore state also to a very large extent what we see is most of this healthcare system is uh, concentrated in urban areas and the peripheries of urban areas like Bangalore, Kolar and Chenpatna and Mysore. Mm. But a lot of the rural areas are required to fend for themselves. Some sort of a healthcare is given, but is it adequate for the population? But I think this is a scenario that we see in colonial states around the country and not just in Mysore. Mysore more so because the princely state of Mysore wanted to go towards modernization, wanted to make sure that they are kind of placed in tangent with the UK system as such. But, you know, this was only the urban push that was there. Most of the hospitals were concentrated in Bangalore and Mysore areas and the legacy continues. We see that till to this day, most of the bigger hospitals are concentrated in urban areas and the rural areas, of course, there is primary healthcare system that is available, but is it adequate? Does it actually help the people? I think that we need to reflect a little bit on. As well as most of these educated doctors as such who got trained abroad would come and settle in Mysore, Bangalore area. They would never go to the rural areas. It's usually the missionaries who went to the rural area and made sure the healthcare was provided to them. But again, they are haggling for you know basic help to do with the better toilet facilities, or medicines. They are constantly asking the government, can you give us help because this is the problem here. And uh, we see this kind of a you know, narrative in the archives that keeps coming up post 1920s, more so before that, because now people are much more literate, people know that that, you know the government has to take care of them and they know that they are paying a lot of taxes more than anything else under the colonial government so i think all these things it's a kind of legacy that is continuing from the 1900s still to this day
0: And I think in your conversation, both of you brought two points that stood out quite distinctly for me. One was this systematic exclusion of vernacular sources. And second was demonization of traditional practices or non-Western medical practices. So is there a way to, I don't know, sort of include these voices when we are looking at such colonial archives and move forward with near holistic perspective?
2: I think a lot of studies in India right now is the post-colonial studies that is happening are concentrating on a lot of the local sources and then trying to bring out the voices that was not available or not reflected because we were focusing more or less on the colonial archives, their administrative records, and giving just one side. Nowadays, whatever work is coming out is I think much more holistic in nature and is much more inclusive in nature. Because the problem that even I'm finding is, when we look at the vernacular sources, not all of it is recorded. In India, we have this tendency not to write down everything, but it is sometimes passed down from the generations. At least until now, with the women doctors in Bangalore, we have not found even a single diary kind of a thing, where you know women doctors are actually telling you what their struggle was, which you find it in other cultures. The system of writing actually kind of is not there in India and that's the reason why most of these records related to vernacular practices especially is not available. So I think this is something that we keep coming across but we try to build whatever we can by looking at the vernacular newspapers. I think newspapers are the best possible way where people are freely expressing their thoughts but also magazines magazines are in a a way reflect and also the Kannada books that were published in that era. These are some of the things that we are actually including as a part of our narrative when we are looking at the institutionalization of healthcare.
1: We are not going to find all of these sources. We have to be honest enough and say that this is their evident lacune. So we highlight it to the best of our ability, but leave scope for doubt, say that, you know, this is an incomplete story and it's always going to be a work in progress. I think it's just about being honest with that and not, you know, doubling down saying that this was what it was written. So this was how it was supposed to be. This is just one perspective.
2: Yeah, that's actually very true. Nothing can be complete. Every story is from one perspective. I wouldn't say this is a drawback, but this is one side of the story. And uh, we are actually trying to say this one story and probably somebody can pick up on that story and work more on it. And uh, probably we might have many other smaller archives that might come forward and then say that, you know, we also have this story. Because as in, when we are talking about the women doctors, we actually came across a lot of other people who are saying, oh, my great-grandmother was also a doctor and then this is her story. Our idea here is to actually present this archive, to say this story and then hopefully many others might come forward and say that, you know, there is something more to present.
0: I really like the perspective and starting the story with an open end so that we are all a part of this shared narrative and the process of storytelling as we go forward.
1: So I think this project and this outcome of this project can be one of the ways we can see how, you know, data sets that are in archives, it in a small space like the SL Patia or in other places can be actively included into ongoing conversations at multiple levels. Because as we are saying, all of these stories are incomplete. And adding more and more pieces to this unknown jigsaw puzzle is just going to give us more pieces to play with. And in time, these efforts will snowball into something that will give us a better and a more holistic perspective. And at the end of the day, different voices are at different levels. And this is one way of expressing these voices.
2: Yeah, and probably more of micro histories might come up after, you know, probably the story of the women doctors goes out. Hopefully, many other people, as I mentioned before, might come up saying that we have a story to share. So I think the point is that, not just to write a paper, but the point is having an active public engagement through podcasts like this, where we are saying that we have this story and we are giving you this story. And it's not just my story that I'm going to keep as a researcher, which most of us actually do. But the point of this entire conversation with the larger public is, we have this story, we are ready to share. Do you have a story that you can share? I think through this Women Doctors, we will be able to uncover other micro-histories. Probably not immediately, but as I strongly believe, everything has a ripple effect. Probably in another three, four years, something else might come.
1: We're just starting the conversations. We're just starting writing the first chapter and the rest of the chapters is open for other people to fill in.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And I cannot wait to see the outcome of this first chapter and how it goes forward.
2: Thank you for having me again. And I think it's, as usual, it's amazing to actually sit and talk to you both because it helps you think more on how you want to position you. And also, I think the podcast has been one great way to reach out to the larger public when you're not able to talk to them one-on-one basis. But this is definitely a way where people can actually understand uh, the kind of work that you're doing and also probably co-participate. I think that is very important and that we have been trying to do with the museum as well as the archival space.
0: And I also appreciate the perspective about starting the ripple effect where the results aren't immediate, but it sparks the conversation and sort of starts the domino effect. I think that's what we need, like the first chip of the old
1: block. And that's why we need to keep chipping away.
0: (laughs) Great. (laughs) You had to get that in. Thank (laughs) you. This podcast series is the result of a foundation project implemented by the India Foundation for the Arts under its Archives and Museums Program in collaboration with the SL Bhatia History of Medicine Museum, Library and Archives with part support from the Parijat Foundation.